Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, April 13th. Today we have an interview with Luis Sanchez. Uh, this is our first time talking with him in person. I've been exchanging DMs with him for a long time. Uh, really detailed conversation on, I guess, three companies. Uh, but this one was a lot of fun, and it's uh, one of the companies we own. So uh, it was nice to kind of use him as a sounding board. Um, any highlights from the interview that I'm missing for you? Yeah, so Autodesk and Procore are two companies that a lot of people know about. I thought we had a good discussion on that. Avid's um, interesting too. And then Avid Technology was its own one that I think very few investors know about. Um, so two different ones. He has a compelling thesis for both. He has an interesting uh, sort of strategy too. That we're going to strategy, the, which we talk about briefly. But yeah, overall, great interview. And then we'll hit uh, sort of our show notes, our talking points after. So uh, listen to the interview, stick around for the banter. But before we move to the interview, we have our sales pitch, and it's uh, seven investing today. That's right, and some big news came out today. So you want to talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so they just announced their seventh advisor. So this is the team is filled out. I know they've had a little bit of a. Uh, turnover, but they have the seven advisors now leading their recommendations, and it is Dana Abramovitz, a little bit of a tough on the last name there, but she has a before. she has a PhD in biochemistry, a master's in management, and a postdoc fellowship. I'm reading this off of Simon's tweet. I'm sure there's more onto it, but she's a healthcare specialist, so a great addition oh, to the team. Yeah. That is an industry that a lot of people would love to have research on because it is very complicated for individual investors to know. So I'm excited to learn about uh, some of the healthcare picks and for That's her to add one. to the fantastic seven investing <laughs> returns, 38%, or actually 38.8%, which is beating the market by 14% since their inception fantastic returns and you can use our code ccm at checkout to get ten dollars off i think that was a good one anything else sales pitch yeah no i think that's it without further ado here's the interview welcome to chit chat money on this show hosts ryan henderson and brett schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing as a quick reminder chit chat money is a ccm media group podcast Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, today we are welcomed by Louise Sanchez. Am I say- I'm saying the first name right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so... For anyone that doesn't know you or hasn't seen you on Twitter, why don't you give us a little bit about your background, how you got into the world of finance, and then what do you do now? Yeah, sure. How far back do you want me to go? (laughs) When did you start? Uh, I mean, like I I kind of fell in love with investing in college. And um, I mean, I I didn't actually know anything about investing when I I got to college. I was originally like a pre-med major and figured I didn't really like that. And then um, I studied abroad in China. So I, I got really into that and I was actually a Chinese language major. And then I just kind of thought through like, okay, well maybe like doing business and Chinese kind of make, kind of, kind of make sense because they kind of go together or international business. And then um, in my finance classes, I learned about the stock market and I just became enamored with it. Um, and from there on, I did a bunch of internships and 
you know, I knew in college, like I wanted to be a professional investor based off of just all of like me nerding out on like, you know, reading all the investing books and just learning about the industry. And so, you know, I asked my mentors basically at the time, like, well, how do I get to be like, you know, in that position? How do I work at like, you know, a long short hedge fund that does like really good work? And the answer that I was told was, well, you know, you should really go do investment banking um, because they, they give you the right skills. And then from investment banking, you can go and recruit into private equity or hedge fund. So that's what I did. I spent the first part of my career in, invest in investment banking. Um, investment banking gets a really bad rap, especially today where people complain about like the terrible working conditions. And, and like, yeah, it's true. You know, for like the better part of five years, I, I worked hundred hour weeks, but um, I got to work on some amazing projects. You know, I, I worked in m and I also worked in a couple of uh, industry coverage areas. And I learned a ton and it really uh, gave me all the technical skills I needed. And then from, from the investment bank, um, I went and worked for a quantitative investment firm. Um, and that was really interesting, like to have that quant experience because I learned a lot about like base rates, you know, I learned a lot about, well, what kinds of stocks, like if you look at over like 30 or 50 or a hundred year history, like what kinds of stocks, tend to perform this way versus that way. And um, I learned a lot about portfolio management too, because you just tend to run all these, you run all these simulations of all these different types of portfolios and you, you just, you can learn a lot. Um, and I, I guess like I came to this realization that I was a lot more interested in the more qualitative side of, of investing and so like this really interesting thing with quantitative investing is like, if you look at like the decile of evaluation, uh, quantitatively, the cheapest stocks tend to outperform, right? And if you look at like each decile, the outperformance, you know, gets stronger, the cheaper the stock you go to. Yeah. But at the same time, the stocks that have performed the best all come from like the worst decile of performance. And so, and the reason is because some stocks screen terrible quantitatively, but if you do the qualitative work, they, you can actually find some like real gems. Right. So I, I became really interested in that idea and like trying to find, you know, those kinds of really special stocks, you know, like the Amazons or the Starbucks is. Um, and now you're, yeah. and now you started your own shop, right? Yeah. 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 So um, about three years ago, I started uh, LVS Advisory, which is uh, my own um, investment advisory business to kind of pursue some of these ideas with um, with qualitative investing. And um, I have like, I guess um, I have somewhat of a unique model in that um, I run um, two very different strategies. I run two strategies that are like polar opposites of each other, but because they're because they're so different, they kind of work really well together. So the first strategy is what I call a defensive strategy. And it's essentially like a cash management strategy where the goal is basically to generate like a really steady rate of return, um, call it like five to 10% a year, and really not have very much volatility, not have very much correlation to the stock market or to the bond market. And what, you know, what we're essentially investing in is a diversified portfolio of different types of event-driven situations and different types of defensive stocks. 
So like the biggest strategy I employ in that is merger arbitrage, but I also uh, employ investing in like preferred stock, uh, dividend stocks, and like a variety of other uh, special situations. So like we got really big into SPACs as well last year. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like we, the, the, the best, the, the most interesting and the most successful investment we made last year in our defensive portfolio was when the world was falling apart during the COVID crash, um, I observed that, you know, SPACs as an asset class were all trading below the value of their cash. And I knew something about SPACs because this is kind of in my wheelhouse. So we, you know, we, we loaded up. You know, we I, I saw it as like buying dollars for for eighty cents, or you know, sometimes buying dollars for, you know, seventy cents um, or ninety cents, and and then kind of the the totally unexpected happened, which is like spacs. Uh, they became really hot, and they went from trading at ten, you know, percent discounts to cash to all of a sudden, you know, come like end of last summer, even early this year, some SPACs are trading at like 50% premiums. And it, it, it kind of makes sense. It kind of doesn't, right? Because I, I did think that SPACs would be more valuable than ever in like the environment we had last year, because in an environment where capital is really scarce, these SPACs were a source of capital. And a lot of these SPACs had like really great capital allocators behind them. So I really did think that some of these SPACs could end up buying like really, really good businesses. And some of them certainly did. Um, I did not anticipate SPACs getting as, you know, as crazy as they, as they did and all the issuance we had, but that's kind of another story. Um, so the other strategy I run, as I mentioned, is like the polar opposite. It's essentially like a global growth strategy and it's a 20 stock portfolio of basically the 20 stocks that I think are going to just generate the strongest returns over the next 10, 10 years, five, 10 years. And um, basically um, I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm taking more risk. You know, it's just 20 stock portfolio. I, I invest in all sorts of things outside the U S small caps in the U S but we want to be compensated for more return. And so it, these are just totally two different strategies, right? Like one is we're trying to, to not lose money and to make a decent return. And the other one, we're just trying to swing for the fences and make as much money as possible. And the reason why it works so well together is because um, they tend to offset each other. And like when, you know, when we're in like a bear market, the defensive strategy tends to do pretty well. When we're in a bull market, the growth strategy really shines and I can like rebalance in between them, right? So if growth stocks are, are trading at a discount, we could take some money out of our defensive strategy and like buy growth stocks and like vice versa. Yeah, it's almost like the the active 60-40 almost is that what you're trying to go for to help not necessarily like solely smooth out returns, but it gives you opportunities where you're not just tied to. Yeah. Yeah. Yes and no. Yeah. Like for sure that that's like part of the idea. I think these, these two strategies are like compelling, like on their own for their own separate reasons. Right. So like the defensive strategy is annualized at about 10% per year, but like the sharp ratio is really, really high because it has very little volatility, very few down months. So some people really, really like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I, 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 I kind of pitch it as like a super, super high yield, uh, savings account, except with 
more risk, right? It kind of has like the risk reward profile of uh, like a high yield bond fund, but without the correlation to equity. So it's it's a very specific product. But I guess I, I separate these two products or strategies, right? Because some people, they only want one or the other. And for some people, it makes sense to combine them. Okay. So yeah, I, I view these as separate, but also they can be combined. And I think the most, you know, as a 60-40, I think it works really well. On, on that growth side, um, I guess call it growth. Uh, do you hardline it at 20 companies? Like do you, is that, yes. you, you don't go above or you don't ever kind of try to yeah. get a little lenient on it? That's really important for me. Okay. All right. Because um, yeah, I, I just, it, it's like, it's really hard to just have 20 companies in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and that's like a way for me to keep discipline. And on the other side of that spectrum too, by the way, is I don't have starter positions. If, if something comes in my portfolio, it needs to be compelling enough to where I'm willing to make it at least a 4% position at cost. Right. Okay. So is it, do you equal weight it then? Or like, is it uh, or do you kind of bet heavier on the, your higher conviction ideas? Yeah. Um, like my default is to equal weight it, but I let my winners run. Right. So there are like, there are stocks that I have that are like approaching 10% weight, right. Just because they perform so well. Um, the tendency like over time is I'll tend to steer more towards an equal weighting, but I do give myself some like wiggle room. Like if I really like a stock and if this is like a high bar for me, if I really like a stock, I'm willing to like give it like a 50% overweight at cost. Um, and if a stock is, is like, underperforming, I'm willing to, uh, you know, add to it. It's significantly add to it at least once, you know, more than once. I, I probably don't want to throw too much bad money, good money after bad money. But um, yeah. So instead I, of like, uh, and then instead of having like a cash buffer, you just have sort of that other side of the barbell. Exactly. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. So Exactly. So like my philosophy is instead of carrying cash, like I have this really good alternative for cash. Right. Right. Like, and, and look, I, like, obviously I think people should have like cash for like personal purposes, but in the context of a portfolio, um, cash is cash is there's an opportunity cost. Right. So I, I tried to create something. This is actually, this is what the reason I created this is because I just, I felt like this, there was a really big hole in the market for something like this. Right, because you know, buying bonds that only yield two percent, or putting your money in a, in a checking account that only earns like two or three percent, it's not really that compelling. Um, buying stocks may not make sense for everyone because it carries with it stock market risk. So this is like an intermediate thing where, like, if we could earn, you know, like eight or nine or ten percent, like last year we actually earned fifteen percent which was great. And a lot of that was because of how well SPACs did. Right. But if we could earn like 10% per year, um, like that's definitely like that's significantly better than cash. Right. And if we could do it without taking stock market risk, then, you know, it doesn't have to be viewed in that same bucket. Yeah. 10 per, 10% is a decent. Yeah. That's what I mean. That, 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 that's a compelling pitch right there. Um, yeah. Right. I view it as like, I view it as like, it could be like an alternative to bonds, but I really view it as like opportunistic capital, right? Which is right. like, a lot of people have cash, 
that they're just waiting for an opportunity. They don't necessarily want to buy the NASDAQ after it's like doubled over two years, right? Maybe part of that is like behavioral finance issue and maybe they should be buying the NASDAQ. I don't, I don't know. I don't try to be, I don't try to predict where like the markets are going, but if someone has a strong personal preference to, to have some opportunistic capital, maybe they, maybe they're waiting for like a real estate deal. Maybe they want to buy a house. Maybe, you know, maybe they just, they, they need to have like an overweight to cash for a particular reason. And I just, I, I think this is a good home for maybe some of the cash. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, the the two topics for this show are on the other side of the barbell, which is the growth side. And uh, the first one we wanted to talk about is something that Brett and I weren't really familiar with until you put it on our radar. Um, and it's Avid. And I guess we'll talk streaming as well. But do you want to explain for anyone that doesn't know what is Avid? Sort of what do they do? For sure. So Avid Technology, the ticker is AVID. Um, I'll just say that... Uh, I, I am long Avid. I have a position in Avid as, as do my clients. So just to get that disclosure out of the way. Right. Um, Avid is the leader in high-end video and audio editing software. And so the key is high-end, right? And one of the reasons why I, I suggested Avid is because it actually dovetails really nicely with our conversation on Autodesk and Procore, which is... Um, Avid is, is essentially the Autodesk of like video and audio, video and audio uh, high end. Um, so, essentially, if if you're if you're making like low end content, like something that goes on YouTube, or even like a corporate sales video that doesn't necessarily require like a super high level production, you don't need Avid. You're probably doing that on either Final Cut or Adobe. But if you're making if you're broadcasting March Madness or if you're gonna make the next Game of Thrones for Netflix, or if you're gonna make a movie for Hollywood, you're almost guaranteed to be making it on Avid in one, in one way or another. And to kind of like draw the analogy to like Autodesk, right? If you're just making like a single family house, you don't need to subscribe to the full Autodesk suite, right? But if you're making like a high rise building, almost for sure you're gonna be using Autodesk software for that, right? So that's kind of how I would contextualize it. What so who are their customers then? Like Netflix, kind of the big production houses or uh, sorry, streaming, companies. streaming companies? Exactly, right? So it, it, all the big TV broadcasters, all the big Hollywood studios are for sure avid customers on the video side. On the audio side, they're also the leader in like studio, like, uh, like recording studios. Um, so very similarly, they're like, you know, when, when you're making like a Taylor Swift album, you're going to be using the Avid software and hardware for that. And then there's a variety of like in the mid-tier, right? So mid-tier, we're talking about like regional um, outfits, maybe like a local TV station or, um, or maybe like the corporate video. Then, then they have some market share there. They're not necessarily like as dominant in the mid-tier. Um, so, but they're also like in the sound market, they're also pretty good in the mid-tier so like they, you'll find Avid equipment in like churches, you'll find Avid equipment at like live concerts, you'll find Avid equipment, um, you know, live events is, is a big is a big market for them. Um, but in the high end, they're dominant. In the mid tier, they're competitive. And in the low end, they're, they're not as big. They, there's actually more of an opportunity for them. 
Okay, and is that because the equipment and the, the software is too, say, expensive for the lower end customers, or is it just not something they target? Yeah, so basically, um, at the high end, you're talking about, you're not talking about like just subscribing to like Photoshop and like making a document or making a, editing a picture and just emailing to someone. It's, it's a, it's an end to end, like enterprise solution. Okay. So, you know, they're making, they're, they're serving you on the back end, right? The front end is like a non, an NLE, a nonlinear editor. So like, uh, like a Photoshop, like an application. So they, Avid's, Avid's video application is called Media Composer it, and Adobe's is Adobe Premiere. Apple has one called Final Cut, right? There's all these NLEs, right? And so if you're at like the lower tier, all you may need is like an NLE, a video editing software. But if you're an enterprise, you actually need like, you actually need like what's called an asset manager, something that like is like a collaboration tool where you could like house the, the different um, files and like share them in like a very secure environment. You also may need like the professional grade hardware for like storage or like other kinds of hardware solutions that you need it. Like if you're making like 4K, you know, video and like, you know, mixing sound that goes into a movie. So like really high end, like Dolby Atmos, right? So they're the only company that has like that end to end full solution. They're, but they do compete on the front end. But no one has, they compete with companies that, that make hardware, but the companies, the, their competitors that make hardware don't also make NLEs. And like the companies like Adobe and Apple, they don't make any of like the hardware and they don't, they're not really competitive in like collaboration tools and asset management, right? So that's why like, um, if, if you go to like any like major Hollywood studio, it's not just like a subscription to a service. It's like, an infrastructure, right? They have an avid infrastructure, right? They've built physical studios and editing bays that they put a lot of money into. And not only that, but avid's been the industry standard for 30 years. So it would, there's a really high switching cost in terms of like retraining people in terms of, you know, reconfiguring your, it's basically reconfiguring your whole workflow, right? So it's really, really hard you know, to, to compete with Avid if you don't have the full solution. Okay. I see where you kind of draw the Autodesk comparison. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. And I think you, he hit on, I think two points of your thesis, I'm assuming are the switching costs and the end to end solution, but can you give more of an overview on your thesis as this, as an investment? And then I'm sure we'll have some, some follow-ups yeah, after that. Yeah. I guess the other, uh, but we started briefly talking about it before, uh, before we started recording, but what does, what do you think the next few years look like? I know you said there's a lot of growth that you think will come. Yeah, for sure. So let me just give you like my framework for how I think about like any growth investment. Okay. Um, which is like, I basically have like I, three very simple filters. The first filter is I want to find a company that is experiencing a, a really uh, healthy rate of growth for like at least five and preferably like 10 plus years, right? Um, and the reason behind that is because I think that investors are really good at looking at the next two or three years, but stocks can get really mispriced if you start thinking about like five plus years. Um, the second thing is I, I like to find companies that have strong competitive advantages, because if there's a lot of growth, you want to make sure it's not going to get competed away. 
And the last thing is just you want to find things that you can underwrite the valuation for, right? So reasonable price. So, you know, Avid, basically on the, on the growth point, right now, there's just a content creation boom, okay? And especially, so we've already had a, like a content creation explosion at like the low end of the market for, for many years, right? So like on YouTube, on TikTok, social media, and like Adobe has really just dominated that because that's just what, what's really, it works really well for low end. Um, and so the professional side of the market, you know, if you look at Avid hasn't really, they haven't really tracked the growth rate of like an Adobe because the professional side of the market for many years has been pretty like, pretty flat. Like it's grown a little bit, but now as, as, as we move into like the last couple of years, you know, Netflix really led the way by pushing like, 15 plus billion dollar content budgets and just, you know, creating this massive subscription business. And now you have basically every legacy media company creating their own subscription services. And the only, and the way the business model behind that is to basically outspend each other on content. Right. And there's basically a content war, right? So professional high-end professional content creation, the market for that is, um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it, it's probably doubled, if not tripled over the last couple of years. And Avid is essentially, they're selling the picks and shovels to that industry. So they're they're going to make, you know, they're going to be a huge beneficiary of the quote unquote, like streaming content wars. Um, so on the competitive advantages, like we, we kind of hit on them, right? It's Avid is the industry standard. Uh, they are really ingrained in that high-end ecosystem super high switching costs, um, they're going to capture, they're going to capture the growth, right? That's simple, simple as that. And then like on the valuation point, um, you know, you don't really have to do that much work to just, Avid is just not expensive statistically. It's, it trades for about 17 times this year's expected cash flow, right? And if you look out just like three to five years, it's, it's easily trading for less than 10 times cash flow. Um, and frankly, I think that those estimates could be conservative. I don't think the question on Avid is whether it's cheap or expensive. For me, the question is, well, how cheap is it, right? That's, that's really what I'm trying to figure out. I, I don't, so it's, it's not hard to underwrite Avid on like a valuation basis, although it is hard to model. And I'll get to this in a minute because they're in, they're transitioning their business model to like the next generation of their um, software and hardware suite which involves transitioning from a perpetual license model in the software to SaaS, right? So the financials are, are transitioning and it makes it a little bit tough to, to model it precisely. But if, if you just kind of use like, you don't really have to do that much work to figure out that average cheap if you believe in the company. It's a, it, the more and more you talk about it, it sounds a lot like Autodesk because they just sort of finalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or Autodesk like five years ago, Poten yeah. potentially. Don't want to make any guarantees. Yeah. And, and let me, let me say something else too. I like, I gave the disclosure. I'm long Avid. I'm also long Adobe. I'm also long Autodesk. I know these, these companies really, really well. I actually started following Adobe back in 2013 when they made their initial transition to, to SAS. Um, it's actually like, it's a really interesting cheat code and I'm really bullish on basically all these types of companies you know, they're all really high quality businesses. They have great unit economics. And 
like, let, let's just think about what happens when you transition from a perpetual license to a SaaS, right? Um, you get a little bit of a hit on your revenue up front, right? Because people go from paying you like $1,000 day one for a software to paying you like $50 a month for a software, right? So there's a revenue hit up front. But what happens when people buy perpetual software, perpetual license software is they only ever like rebuy it when there's a big enough uh, upgrading feature set. So it's usually like every like, you know, usually like three, every three to five years. Um, but when, when you have, um, when you have people on a subscription basis, you basically double your customer LTV, right? Because delivering software over SaaS is higher margin and your, your uh, subscriber churn goes down a lot, right? So, you know, even, even if you just maintain your existing business, you have to put like a multiplier on earnings at that same set of customer relationships is going to generate. So it's just a fantastic business model move. And so when, I mean, when we first looked at it, we saw the revenue decline from the, I think it was the integrated solutions. Is that kind of what's happening? Is we're seeing that transition to the SaaS? So actually integrated solutions isn't going to change as much. It is going to change, right? So and you, if you want to talk about integrated solutions, you have to think about the video and the audio side a little bit differently. So the integrated solutions on the video side is primarily storage. And what that means is like a broadcaster like CBS, you know, they have um, on-site storage. They can't, it's not necessarily easy or, you know, maybe they, they just have this legacy model where they currently have things on an on-site storage. Um, and if you're talking about a film set, like think about like film, right? They're, they're filming all over the place or in remote locations. They need to buy, they need to buy physical uh, storage for film. That's just a thing. So what happened with COVID um, is film production shut down. <laughs> so people didn't need to buy the, people didn't need to buy the physical storage or, and the broadcasters, their business was hurt, right? Because lower advertising rates. And um, they didn't necessarily upgrade to new storage as quickly as maybe they would have, right? So there's a little bit of pent up demand there, but there's also on the video side, they're actually also offering, uh, so part of the SaaS solution is they're also offering cloud storage and they have, they struck up a deal with Microsoft Azure. So like they're like basically using Avid uh, as like the front end and using the Azure backend. Um, so the long-term, the storage business is going to kind of transition a bit. I think they're still going to account for the cloud business inside of like the integrated solutions bucket. But yeah, actually, like if you look at the video side, it does, it will kind of transition to more of like a recurring model, higher margin revenue. You know, they're not going to be making as many physical things. So you're going to talk about like higher gross margin. And then with COVID, uh, all the broadcasters, they still had all the broadcasters and, and TV companies, they still had to edit stuff. They still had to like produce a show. And what kind of happened with like the broadcasters, Avid's been pushing like this transition to SaaS for a few years now, but like the media companies, especially the legacy media companies, pretty slow to adapt. They kind of dragged their, their feet because they didn't necessarily want to mess up their existing, you know, they didn't want to change anything because it worked. But 
COVID forced them to basically buy the SaaS licenses because everyone had to work from home. And right. Avid was in a very fortunate situation where it already had all these all these products that it's been trying to push, and finally it could push them. And now that the media companies are using the new Avid stuff, they see that it works. They they understand how to use it. They're probably going to stick with most of it, um, even when they come back. Um, so that's kind of an interesting transition that COVID has happened. But at the same time, there is a lot of pent up demand, right? Because as film as film production sets, you know, really gear up again this year and next year, you're going to see a lot more. You're going to see a hardware sales pick back up. Now on the audio side, there's even more pent up demand, right? Because what you're really talking about is like concerts, live events, churches, um, you know, sound studios where people were not going to like uh, record professional recording studios last year for a period of time. Um, so what I'm reading about and what I'm, t what I'm hearing from people in the field is that the audio side has a lot of pent up demand and on the audio hardware side, um, that's not so much going to a SaaS model. That's probably going to be more, um, sticking to like the hardware way of doing things, but the audio software has moved to a SaaS model. And the really interesting thing actually about the way Avid is positioned in the audio market is their competitors in audio. There's primarily like two other big competitors in audio. It's Logic and Ableton Live. Their competitors are, have not yet made that transition to SaaS. So actually Avid is potentially doing an audio right now, what Adobe did to it like 10 years ago by offering a, a subscription and stealing the low end of the market. Um, so I'm actually really bullish on both sides of the business, but for different reasons. Um, so yeah, it is really hard. Like you, you look at this company with an untrained eye and without having, you know, spent tens of hours, I've probably spent maybe even a couple hundred hours thinking about Avid and it, you don't really, you can't really, they don't really disclose the, the what's disclosed in the 10 K isn't really enough to understand what's going on, but it's, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting things that, that are, that are moving and changing at the company. Well, how, how, what's the hardware mix as like a percentage of revenue and what kind of margins are they getting on the hardware? Cause I think that's something that investors might be concerned about, you know, hardware businesses typically tough. Um, I don't know if you have an exact number on that or anything, but. Ooh, you're going to have to, I'm going to have to open up a spreadsheet, <laughs> but, right. but um, yeah, hardware is pretty small. Um, I believe it's less than a third Okay. of revenue and the gross margins are you know much much smaller so as a percentage of earnings it's probably like less than 15 maybe about 15 percent of earnings um do they still is it still like is the hardware part still profitable i, I guess i'm trying to think mm -hmm. of, it's not like a roku where they're kind of selling the hardware it's just at a loss it, it, it's like no the, the hardware the hardware is profitable okay okay, okay. yeah it's just, it's, yeah, it, it's just not as profitable as selling software where there's no marginal cost to manufacture something, right? Right, right. The key is the software. Yeah. I mean, they, they manufacture the hardware out of like, they use third parties located in Mexico, right? So there is like a lot of cost of goods sold, you know, they have to transport it. Um, and look, these are really, these are really sophisticated pieces of equipment. You're talking about like, you know, spending in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars to buy like to, to outfit like a, a professional recording studio fully right um so it's not yeah 
and the way they tend to send the the way they tend to sell the hardware by the way is they use like uh long-term agreements with um with like resellers or with sometimes they go directly to studios so like hbo for example they may have like they make like a five-year minimum purchase commitment where they say okay over the next five years we we're gonna commit to purchasing a minimum of like a million dollars a year of your hardware and if you if we purchase more you'll give it to us at like a five or ten percent discount right so that there is a little bit of they they do and they they have like similar agreements with like resellers and like channel partners so there is a little bit of predictability with the hardware but i mean software is a much better business but 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 the fact that they have the hardware right gives them this really unique position in the market right because they can attach the software to they could attach the, the software to the hardware or because a company like hbo is using all the hardware um it's an easier like cross sell right and obviously avid software is going to work best with avid's hardware is it uh is it more video or more audio or is it kind of like a uh, fair split yeah i think the company has disclosed in their earnings calls that the mix of of hardware is about 70% on the audio side interesting interesting yeah you think maybe i'm reaching here but i know we cover we look a lot at spotify and the streams from spotify have uh less are coming from just the labels and so i'm curious if maybe how do you think that plays out for Avid if individual artists start doing it kind of themselves or if they're able to do it without the label production stuff. Yeah, well, if the artists go on tour, they're still going to have to buy touring equipment, right? Right, right. And yeah, and um, yeah, and I, I just I just I just looked it up. Uh, uh, hardware is like less than a third of revenue. Okay. So yeah, it's not it's not really the driver of earnings here. It's, it's more, um, it's more of like selling that integrated, like really it's called integrated solution because integrated, what it implies is they're integrating it with software. So it's kind of razor, razor blade, right? They can, they can use, they can, they do make up, they do make money on, on the, the hardware. It's just not, you know, it's just not really the scale, the scale side of the business, but then on the, on the audio side, right? Like Pro Tools is their software solution. Um, Pro Tools has really high market share. You could use it as a software only solution. So they're actually like, even, even if an artist, an independent artist is making music, you know, they could choose Ableton, they could choose uh, Pro Tools, they could choose Logic. In most cases, and I've done a good amount of research on this, the different, the different softwares are kind of good for different things, right? So Pro Tools is said to have like the best mixing and Ableton is said to have some of like the most interesting, um, there's some like very specific use cases, I think in like electronic music has like really good plugins. But in a lot of cases, like these artists, they have they have multiple of these software. They don't just have one, right? Because they, they may use one for one thing and one for the other thing. And one of the really interesting things that Avid has done actually in the last couple of years is they offered a free tier of these software. So it's actually a freemium model. So if you want like the basic, basic, basic version of Pro Tools, you can actually get it for free. And same thing for Media Composer. And a lot of that is because they want to capture like students who are just learning, right? So they want to just have something that they give away for free. 
but the upsell on going from like a free tier to like an amateur tier, you know, you're only, I think, I think uh, Pro Tools is only priced at like 20 or $25 a month. It's still affordable, right? Uh, whereas Ableton, they don't even offer a SaaS license version of it. So if you're going to pay for Ableton, you have to pay, I think their low end is like 500 and their premium tier of Ableton's like seven or 800. So the pricing strategy is actually really, really smart. And this is kind of what I was alluding to with Adobe. They're, gonna, they're, actually, they're actually taking market share in audio. It's really clear if you look at their subscription numbers, their Pro Tools subscriptions are up more than 50% year wow. over year, right? And it's primarily up because of the loan, right? And their Media Composer subscriptions are up too, but it's not clear how much of the Media Composer subscription side is from low end versus high end. The company says they're actually taking market share in the low end, but um, you know, I think Adobe is a lot more dominant in low end, whereas audio is, is much more of a, of a game that I think Avid could win in the low end. So it, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> you've piqued our interest. So. Yeah, I mean, I, any company that does the freemium with the SaaS, that seems like a way better model app. If, if you're doing a comparison just with the uh, if their competitor has the same exact product, I mean, it's just a way better product. Or sorry, the freemium is just way better as a customer acquisition tool. Yeah, yeah. And I was actually I have a friend who's a, a musician. I was actually texting with him this morning, asking him like what he thought about like Ableton versus um, Pro Tools, and he made a really interesting comment, which is that like there's just certain plugins. So so the way that plugins work is you can buy the basic Pro Tools, right? And you can pay the subscription. And then you can buy like third-party plugins. Like think of it like a platform with like API, right? So like, Ryan, like you could make a Pro Tools plugin for like a cool instrument that you created and someone could buy it directly from you. Avid actually doesn't get a slice of that. Maybe, maybe they should change that in the future. But they've created this ecosystem where like, it's also about switching costs, right? So... If if you if you have like all these like really great plugins in your Pro Tools and you figured out like what what you what you like, and if on top of that you've integrated it with hardware, like good luck trying to switch off of that, right? Because there's certain Pro Tools, there, there's certain plugins and Pro Tools that you just can't get in other things, and vice versa. Like like I said, like Ableton has certain certain like plugin packages that are really good, but the net net of it is you know. Pro Tools is really good at some things. Ableton is really good at other things. This other company called Logic is really good at other things. Um, and it's, it kind of depends what your needs are. Another kind of interesting angle to the Pro Tools thing is in video, uh, high-end video, you also need uh, high-end audio to like sync with your video. And Avid pretty much has a monopoly in high-end video audio. So anytime that like Netflix translates like like a Spanish language show into like English, hundred percent they're using Pro Tools for that. Okay. Well, the or like I, I shouldn't say hundred percent. I should say like ninety plus percent. <laughs> right. Nothing's a hundred percent, I guess. The uh, the plugins is a good segue then. To well, Autodesk. let's do a ad break first. Right? Oh, right. Yeah. Quick break, and then we'll hit Autodesk and Procore. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices you'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. 
And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to Advanced Security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced Security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Uh, we just wrapped up with Avid and Streaming, if you forgot, but next we have Autodesk and Procore, which similar business models. Uh, and for anyone that's unfamiliar with Procore, they're uh, basically a construction workflow platform, uh, and they're competing a little bit with Autodesk, so I'm just kind of trying to paint the landscape. Um, but the the two have been pretty direct competitors here, especially the last yeah, the year. Venn, the Venn diagram's closing. Yeah, and Autodesk really making a push um, with their construction cloud. So I'm just curious who you think will, you've been doing a lot of calls, I know, with sort of industry experts. So who do you think will end up being the leader in that category? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I've been getting up to speed on Procore. As, as I mentioned earlier, like, my firm is long um, Autodesk, you know, we're, we're a really big believer in what they do overall. They, you know, just like Avid, they're, they're a really sticky, high quality, verticalized solution for professionals. And the construction market is kind of like new territory for them. Um, in like the last couple of years, they've, they've really built their construction vertical through like uh, acquisition. They acquired PlanGrid, they acquired Building Connected, they acquired another company. They've acquired a few other companies as well. And what I've learned about the construction, the, the software market for construction is that it really breaks up into like three verticals. And in each vertical, there's like different like companies that are like winning and losing. So the first vertical that I would say is like more of like a BIM related solutions vertical slash engineering. And BIM is like building, um, building information modeling yeah. uh, software. Um, and basically this is like 3D models of like, it shows you like everything that's inside of a building that you can't really show on like a 2D uh, drawing. And in BIM, Autodesk dominates that because they, they basically own the BIM market. Um, they, they have all the solutions that are used to create BIM, you know, with Revit and then, um, they, because of that, and because these these BIM files are so specialized, they have the best solutions for like viewing and touring and manipulating the BIM files. So if you're a construction company and you absolutely need to work on something that's BIM related, so this is more like the high-end market where you're talking like a little bit more high acuity projects, you're probably going to be in some capacity paying for some kind of BIM related solution, whether it's BIM 360 Navis works, Revit, you're going to have, you're going to be paying Autodesk for that. Um, the second vertical is project management. So this is like managing like the order of operations, you know, managing like the procurement, managing like, um, so what happens on a construction website or a construction site is uh, an owner owns the project. They hire a construction company to serve as like the general contractor. And the, the general contractor subcontracts out a lot of like the specialized jobs on the site. And so this is like, obviously, if you have software to organize that, it, it's really helpful. Um, and this is where Procore, they, they dominate project management. Um, they, they have like the best in class solution for managing, for like tracking all the costs, 
bidding out the project, you know, doing the compliance and billing. Um, so they're really, really strong here. And then the last vertical of like construction software is what's called field management. And this is actually a market where this is actually like a segment of the market where Autodesk and Trimble have the best solutions. Um, Procore has a solution. It's not quite as good, but Autodesk really actually has a better solution for field management, which is, um, I believe plan grid is their solution and it, and it works really well. So this is like about when you're on the site and you know, you're using like mobile phones or iPads to like, look at, look at the plans and kind of like, you know, see like what jobs need to be done. Um, they have, but Procore does have a good solution for this. And so it is kind of a fierce competition in that, in that part of the market. I think if to kind of like summarize everything I just said, like actually project management, which is what Procore owns is like the biggest market for this. That's like the most essential piece of what you need to do on a construction site. The BIM related stuff is a little bit more niche. You don't need a BIM, a BIM reader for, you know, a majority of projects. Although BIM is like growing in importance, right? Which is more of a threat to Procore and they're kind of working on some BIM stuff. It's just not quite there. Um, and the field management stuff is, is kind of a newer area, not really that big yet. Okay, is there any way for, uh, that you could see Procore stepping on Autodesk shoes on the, and I know both design. markets are early on, on the design side. And then is there any way for Autodesk to go more to the project management side or do you, or is that just too tough of a question to answer or is it just going to stay fragmented? I, 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 I can answer it based on my understanding and, and, you know, I'm still getting up to speed on Procore. I have spoken to like, customers of Procore. I've actually spoken to like former sales reps at Procore. So I have a good sense of how people kind of think about it. And the sense that I get is that, yeah, Autodesk really owns, I mean, they own BIM. There, there's no way around it. Uh, they just already have the solution and everything that Procore has done so far with BIM, it hasn't, it just hasn't been up to snuff. Um, you know, I think that's probably more of an opportunity for Procore more so on like just using BIM files. If you're talking about design, like I don't think, I don't think, I think Autodesk is always going to own BIM design. Right. But if you're talking about just like using it in the field, like, yeah, I think Procore has a decent shot of getting into that. But, you know, Autodesk basically gives away a lot of its BIM software in the field as part of its strategy to like get market share in, in this area. So there's not really very, there's not really much incentives for construction companies to use Procore solutions for BIM because it, it, it's not cost effective and it's also worse. So that's kind of a sneaky thing that Autodesk is doing. On the other side of it, right, like Autodesk is really aggressively investing in their, um, they, have a, they have a project management solution called BIM 360. Um, and they're really aggressively like trying to build out uh, a lot of these project management solutions and um, I don't, I don't think they're going to have much, much success actually, in terms of like stealing market, in, in terms of stealing customers who are already on Procore, because a couple of things. Procore is actually a lot better because Procore has built everything from the ground up, so everything like works really well in Procore, whereas like Autodesk has basically patched together a bunch of acquisitions. So the Autodesk software isn't yet as good as Procore. It doesn't sync as well. It's a little bit slower. Um, it's just, it's not perceived to be as good as Procore either. 
And um, kind of like hearkening back to like our Avid discussion, there's a lot of switching costs to get off of Procore, right? If you think about what's at risk, you know, of like moving off of Procore, I think the biggest thing is retraining, right? Because people just know how to use Procore. And I've, I've, I spoke to a customer who said it took their, it took their firm like two years to get everyone trained on Procore. Really? They don't want to have to retrain people to get off Procore, um, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of switching costs. Procore also, depending on like how many modules you use of Procore, they have like a few different like modules within like the, the solution, right? You could use a project management module, you could use a field management module. They have a module that basically does like financial reporting. So like the more things, the more Procore you're using, the, the more integrated you are, the tougher it's gonna be to switch off. Um, so I, yeah, that's kind of how I would summarize that. Like, I think that, but where I do see the opportunity here is there's a, this is a huge market and there's still a ton of white space. So I think that there's still a lot of upside for both companies. Like even if Autodesk is like a distant number two, right? Procore estimates that the market today is like for software, construction software is like a $10 billion market. And even if Autodesk is like a distant second and has like 10% market share, that's still a billion dollars, right? Like that's still, that's still a big business. And like, I view these as like more complementary solutions because a lot of construction companies, they're already paying Autodesk to, to, you know, to use a lot of these bin files. So I viewed it more as like both companies can win, right? There's, there's room for both. Um, in a similar way, like, comp like on the Avid conversation, companies will pay for both Adobe and Avid. And there's certain situations like Adobe After Effects is really, really good for 3D graphics, right? So there's, a, there's an integration with Avid where, you know, you do some graphics work in Adobe After Effects and you import it into Avid. You know, you could kind of think of that similarly with like Autodesk and Procore, which maybe you do some 3D modeling with, with Autodesk stuff and you import it into Procore. Right. The, uh, okay. So you think it'll kind of stay as like Autodesk is the pre-build and Procore owns sort of the build? Or do you, I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, I think just for like project management, like even pre-build, like pre-construction planning, Procore is still winning in that. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but if, if you're talking about design, if you're talking about design, yeah, Autodesk is, they're just the monopoly in design. Yeah, there's like, we know the company, it seems like it would be tough, very, very tough to dethrone them. Uh, but specifically, excuse me, on the project management site or stage, they do an interesting thing where like with a standard subscription service, you kind of just, you only need one person to use it. But with construction, there's always these people coming in and out of these projects and then the pay per seat model has, how does that work? I guess, uh, for people that aren't familiar and does that give mm -hmm. anyone an advantage for like Procore or is it just kind of how that, that industry works? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it is interesting because most SaaS software is, price on a per seat basis, which basically means that like, if you have 10 people who are using like a software like uh, Autodesk, then you're paying like $50 per person per month, right? And Avid does, uh, sorry, Autodesk does price, it's been 360 on a per seat basis. Although, like I just said, they kind of just give it away for free right now because they're trying to take share. <laughs> they're right, just trying right. to get people, Autodesk is really just trying to get people to use 
they're trying to get people hooked on their, their software. It's a really interesting strategy, by the way, that Autodesk is also doing in like the manufacturing design market. And you know, I think the strategy has proven to work for them over time. And although um, that's with Fusion 360, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Fusion 360. Um, and that's a conversation for another day. But with Procore, they have a unique pricing model. They price on, um, I think they call it annual construction volume. Yeah. And basically what that means is um, they're pricing based on like the size of the project or like the revenue or the annual revenue of the construction company, depending on if the license is a project, is, is it spec'd out for a project or if it's spec'd out for an enterprise. And there's like two levels of that, by the way, that are priced a little bit differently. But the way that most Procore is, is priced is on a construction project by construction project basis. And they typically price it like uh, either like 10 or 20 bips of the, of the value of the project. So if, um, if the construction project's like a billion dollar project, like let's say they're building a hospital or something, then the Procore fee at 10 bips is gonna be like a million dollars, right? Okay. And the way they do it is it's like a one year term and the client typically pays the Procore fee up front, but that's usually how they do it. And then like you said, the interesting thing about Procore is unlimited seats. So people can come in, come out, they could have a thousand people working on the site. They could have 500 people working on the site. Same price. It's based on the, the size of the project. Um, there's an interesting thing about this though, with this nuance in pricing, which is that like people can play games with the pricing, right? Because what if the construction could be lies about the size of the project, right? Yeah. Like what if they're kind of incentivized to say, they're kind of incentivized to underbid the size of the project. Um, so if it's a billion dollar project, they might say, oh, it's only 600, right? So only, only charge is 600K instead of a million, right? Or a lot of times what happens is um, the company will under budget it. And then if it turns out to be higher, then they'll just pay Procore a little bit extra at the end of the project, right? That's something that some companies do. Um, so, and Procore, like if, but the interesting thing about Procore, right, is if you're fully integrated into Procore, you have like all the modules, Procore could just log into your account and see how much you build. So they kind of know, but only if you use all the modules. So if you only use your project management module, you could kind of play games with it. But the downside of this model though is, and this is actually something that happened last year, is if, if, your, if your site shuts off, you're on the hook. So a lot of companies, they thought they were going to do like a billion dollars of construction revenue last year, but because construction sites shut off for like half the year, they only ended up doing 500 million, but they paid, they paid Procore up front. So a lot of those companies got burned actually. And like, it'll be kind of interesting to see how Procore um, amends that with clients. Like I know that they're going to work things out with clients and that actually could be a headwind on like their near-term financial performance if they're still having to like make up for the, what, what they built last year. But that is kind of an interesting dynamic of that model. Whereas like Autodesk, you just, you just stop paying the monthly subscriptions, right? You just turn it off. Right. Is Autodesk leaning towards copying them? Cause I've seen them mess around with different pricing models. Are they not copying Procore exactly I, yet? They mentioned in the conference call that they are, I, I believe they said they can 
be flexible with the pricing like they can do it that way but it sounded like they were reluctant to do it like they prefer to charge on i don't i don't think it makes sense right uh because i mean the way that the way that autodesk is being used today right is only a only a small group of engineers who understand how to use bim files are are needing to like use bim 360. so there might only be like five seats on a, on a billion dollar construction project right and and then and then there's also the aspect of Autodesk isn't really charging for this right now anyway, so they don't really they could say whatever they want about flexibility. They're not really charging for it. But should they like I I I suppose like if they more fully build out like the project management tools, like I don't see why like I think pricing is very flexible, right? This is software, so you could price however the customer wants it to be priced. Right. Um, yeah, I I think they I think they could easily adapt. To that it's right not, yeah it's something that yeah because i was kind of thinking of if there's something within their business model that's going to prevent them from doing that but i guess i don't know we'll see we'll see if they choose to just, do it i guess there's no nothing stop just the accounting department <laughs> yeah, yeah true, true. <laughs> i guess i was gonna say what's the incentive then why do it sounds like the general contractors prefer uh like a volume like based on the like based on a per project pricing is that just because they don't know how many people are going to be on the project like they might hire subcontractors later on or is it I, i'm just curious why procore decided to go about it that way yeah you know i don't i don't exactly know why they've decided to do it that way uh, i'm not yet an expert on procore i haven't studied the history of it as much but just thinking through it though it is like a it is a fair model, right? Like it scales with the size of the client and it scales on like the need. And I mean, 10 bits um, is not, so the construction industry is interesting for a few reasons. The first thing to know about it is like, yeah, a project might be like a billion dollars, but profit margins in the construction industry are like 3%, yeah. right? So you can't charge like, you know, you can't, you can't really, like yeah, it, it sounds it sounds like like really appealing. Like oh, maybe Procore has like a lot of pricing power if they only taking like one percent of the price. Well, actually, but their the customers' profit margins aren't big. So the other thing too is um, like depending on the nature of the job, you could actually bill the uh, the technology fee up to the owner right as part of the bidding pro uh, process. So it is kind of nice to have an estimate up front of like, well, here's what the Procore budget's gonna be if we finish on time, right? And then you could just put that in the bid. And so you don't really have to, so you don't have to worry like, well, what if I need 10% more contractors? I'm gonna have to go back and twist Procore's arm, right? Yeah. So it, it does, It does. if you think about like how these projects are like bid out and uh, executed, it does, it does make sense. It, it does seem pretty fair. Okay. So let's say uh in let's say a three trillion dollar infrastructure bill gets passed. What goes in the infrastructure bill basket for you? <laughs> I will I mean not Autodesk not. Autodesk for sure. Yeah. But is that do you think uh I don't know, yeah, do you yeah. think that it is a uh sort of catalyst for some of these software providers? Uh I think yes, but it, I don't think it matters because look, last year was the worst year ever for construction. I mean, if you look at any measure of like 
the the architect billing index or like any measure of construction spending by all accounts last year was the worst yet right procore still grew its revenue over 30 percent and autodesk almost doubled its its earnings i think that tells you everything you need to know about these businesses right they're super super resilient <laughs> and so they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna benefit regardless right because these companies, they need the software. They need the software to do the job for a lot of reasons that we could get into if you want. There's a lot of technological, there's a lot of problems that technology fixes uh, at the construction site and in the, in, in the design process. So yeah, of course, like more spending on infrastructure is going to help in the near term. But if, you're, if you think about like the long-term drivers, you know, even if we don't get an infrastructure bill, the long-term drivers are, are still going to be intact which is global populations growing, right? It's expected to grow, global populations expected to grow like 30% over the next 30 years. And we're gonna have to build a lot more, you know, infrastructure and a lot more housing, a lot more stuff to accommodate that population growth. Even existing stuff that's already built still needs to be maintained. You know, building codes change over time. Things need to be retrofit, whether it's because of like higher climate change standards or because maybe people want to reuse their buildings, right? Like we're, we're seeing that actually right now with COVID, which is like people's relationship to real estate can change, right? So with remote work and social distancing, maybe you need to redesign the way something, the way like a conference center is built. And you're going to need to design it in Autodesk and you're probably going to need to manage the project with Procore, right? So, you know, and then, and then of course, there's also the idea that like, the construction industry overall has like one of the lowest penetration rates of technology. So not only is there like a really long tailwind for construction spending and aggregate, but there's also going to be a rising rate of technological adoption. So I think, you know, if you, if you think long-term, it's hard not to be like really bullish on the, the long-term growth. Um, yeah. I think I, I would be bullish either way. All right. Wrap up question. Yeah. We'll have uh, yeah. Just the one. What yeah. is one piece of advice you have for anyone considering a career in investing or maybe broader if that's kind of what you have? Yeah. Yeah. So like, as, as like I mentioned up top, like I have a pretty somewhat non-traditional route to getting, or I've done things kind of my own way to a degree. And I think that every investor needs to find their own way and they just need to find if you want to have a career in investing, you just need to find what works for you based on, you know, your relevant skills and your personality, right? So like I mentioned, like I was working at a quantitative shop and I realized, you know, like I think quantitative works for a lot of people, but my personality is probably more qualitative. You know, I do a lot of like research on international and small cap stocks. Some people may not be comfortable with that. Some people may prefer large cap. So, you know, I think every investor needs to like find their own way. And, you know, you could do that by like reading a bunch of books, you know, um, if you don't, if you don't know what your style is, you know, read, read all the greats, you know, go work for an established shop where you could train and over time, just try to like be very introspective and, and figure out what, what works for you. Any book recommendations? No, just the, the classics. <laughs> <laughs> well, the classics, right? So I've, I've listened to a lot of your guys's uh, shows. So uh, I don't want to be repetitive because I think a lot of people know that like Joel Greenblatt writes great books or, you know, 
anything like about Warren Buffett is obviously great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more of like a growth investor. And I think, you know, a, a really good book for, for growth investors to read is, uh, you know, anything written by Phil Fisher, right? So Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits is, is a really interesting book, you know, even though it was written like 50 years ago. Um, there's a lot in there that I actually apply to my investing process today. You know, he really talks about scuttlebutt, which I do a lot of, you know, scuttlebutt is essentially, you know, talking to people who work in an industry and like truly try to get like a deeper level of understanding about an industry than you could just by reading like a 10K, right? So I think that's a really, for a book recommendation, that's a really interesting one. Okay. A classic for sure. And uh, where can any any listeners that want to find you, where's the place to do that? Oh yeah. Um, so I'm active on Twitter um, at Luis V Sanchez 777. Um, I, I post uh, like a monthly, like basically investment write-up or a monthly blog post. I usually put it on Twitter, but I also put it on my website, which is uh, lvsadvisory.com. Okay, perfect. perfect, perfect. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Louise. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, thanks again to Luis Sanchez for coming on. Uh, definitely enjoyed it. Feel free to follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's got some good... Uh, tweets, I guess. Research, <laughs> good, kind yeah. of, uh, good. No, he does good research good on follow. there. Definitely a good follow. Yes. Yes. Uh, but now we're going to talk about um, sort of our show notes. So if you remember, we've kind of changed up the structure. So it's interview first, get the good stuff out of the way, and then we just ramble on about nonsense. And so my oh, it's nonsense. Not, hey, hey, don't don't downplay us. Have some confidence. All right. Here. Well, my nonsense this week is Microsoft buying Nuance Communications. This was announced. I think this morning, maybe. Uh, it was yesterday. rumored, yeah, rumored yesterday, officially announced this morning. The so it's for $19.7 billion, a uh, very small amount, obviously, <laughs> for Microsoft. Maybe. Have you heard of this company? I, I had, no, me not neither. But I'm going to pretend that I have. So it's a 23% premium to Nuance's closing price on Friday. So it's apparently a decently big company. Um, and Nuance, this is basically all from the press release, is a leading provider of conversational AI and ambient clinical intelligence for healthcare providers. So uh, it's the way, I mean, everyone on Twitter basically just said it's AI in the healthcare space. Uh, I know. Boom, automatic buy. 55% of physicians and 75% of radiologists in the US use Nuance's solutions. Um, 77% of U.S. hospitals use nuanced solutions. A quote from Satya Nadella said, AI is technology's most important priority and healthcare is its most urgent application. Together with our, part our partner ecosystem, we will put advanced AI solutions into the hands of professionals everywhere to drive better decision-making and create more meaningful connections as we accelerate growth of Microsoft Cloud for healthcare and nuance. Um, so something, I mean, that's been a big theme for them with Azure is this sort of industry-specific cloud offerings, yeah. which I find interesting. And so I guess the first question would be, are we are we underestimating the size of cloud? Because I know everyone already says, nah, it feels I mean, like everyone just says like, oh, cloud's the future. But it, I'm pretty, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, we don't own any of the cloud companies. I don't own any of the cloud companies personally, but... I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe in general, people are underestimating it. But uh, do you I think mean, to most, me, I don't know. It's, to me, it seems like it's going to grow at a high rate for a long, long time. Do you think most cloud offerings will just end up getting bottled down to Azure or AWS? No, like, Google too. Google, Google's, yeah, Google did 13 billion last year, so they're within it too. Okay. 
I mean, AWS is quite a bit larger. Azure's in the middle, but Google is is doing quite well. And they actually, their first client was Spotify, and they kind of launched together. It's a whole big story, but yeah, and uh, it's a tough industry to understand at a deep level for a generalist like us, but. I think you can easily say, yeah, I mean, the growth is going to be strong for a long, long time. Yeah. Whether that's priced in is kind of tough to tell. Okay. Uh, but there's giant economies of scale here, too. I don't know. It seems like the best business you could have maybe imagined for the 21st century. I, I think about two years back, we said if AWS was on its own, what valuation would you give it? And I think at that time, we said something like 250 or 300 billion. Would you uh, revise probably, that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, now it's whether. Oh, it's definitely larger than that. I don't have. I don't have it. Worth a trillion dollars. Ooh, it might be valued at that. I don't know what its revenue run rate is currently. If it's around fifty billion dollars, you could argue the market would value it at a trillion dollars potentially because it seems like companies like that are getting twenty times sales multiples. But. I'm not sure what it what its true value is. I, I mean, I don't know. It, it would get a hefty multiple, and it's probably the biggest part of Amazon's business now. Azure I mean, profits wise, yeah. Well, yeah, but or Microsoft. I mean, sorry, I thought you were talking about Amazon. Did you say Amazon or Microsoft? I said Amazon. Oh. So AWS for Amazon, Azure, dual Microsoft. Uh, it's different because Azure is going to be quite large, but it's still not the biggest part of the business. I don't think, and they don't they don't. Um, Azure is part of a different revenue segment, so they don't actually like break it out mm-hmm. all that often. But it is actually going quicker than AWS um, at fifty percent last quarter. Um, but who knows? I don't know. These things. There's there's people out there that are a lot smarter than us that yes. know these a lot better. So I kind of just ignore it because there's so much intelligence going into analyzing these industries that I'm like, well, yeah. what am I going to add? <laughs> uh, Microsoft was also recently rumored to be in talks with Discord for apparently a ten billion dollar acquisition. Do you think? Do you think Microsoft gets the most acquisition freedom of all the big tech companies? Oh, like for sure, flexibility yeah, I mean, to acquire what they want. Yeah, I mean, I, I what I don't. It doesn't matter what I think. That's a fact. <laughs> the there's no way, and none of the other tech companies, big tech companies, can acquire anyone. Which is a little ironic considering that Microsoft was sort of the first one to see regulatory pressure of the big five now. Yeah, it's right? weird. Maybe maybe they're just seeing this window is open and they're going to try to get some stuff in as fast as possible. Acquire everything they can. Yeah, the but Discord makes sense because of the gaming aspect. You know, you can attach it to Xbox, right? Yeah. Something, 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 synergies. I don't well, know. I mean, there's synergies. I think Microsoft... <laughs> Could buy anything, and you could claim their. Yeah, they're they're in so healthcare AI. Yeah, how does that integrate with Excel sheets? That's 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 correct. That's correct. Uh, I guess you could argue that for most things, but (laughs) I think Discord actually makes sense. Um, And LinkedIn, I guess, did make sense, although a lot of people bag on it. But it makes a lot more sense than other social networks. You know what I mean? It made a lot more sense than TikTok, which they were rumored to be acquiring sometime this summer, right? TikTok America. I think everyone was rumored to buy TikTok. At Even point. Oracle, right? Walmart and <laughs> Oracle, I think, went in on a partner bid. I, I, if someone told you that headline, you'd think it's a joke. But yeah, and you were gone. So if so, I'm not joking. Nah, it's well. Uh, that was a whole just. That was all just kind of headlines, right? It was all yeah. nothing was substantiated. What uh? What's your next topic? Okay, 
Um, speaking of another cloud company, I guess we forgot about the Chinese ones, right. uh, Alibaba. So they're still in the cloud race with other companies out there. But Alibaba was in the news again, fined $2.8 billion by a, the Chinese government's anti-monopoly probe. So this is the result of the government's investigation into Alibaba, which also coincided with that Jack Ma disappearance and ant financial IPO getting pulled back, I think. Um, they're all happening at a similar time over the last few months or so. So whether they were saying they were, it seems like these things are connected. Uh, the China official, uh, I, I didn't get their name, uh, said Alibaba, quote, infringes on the businesses of merchants on the platforms and the legitimate rights and interests of consumers. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people are saying this means Alibaba is in, quote, in the clear and that, you know, this shows that their financials are legit because a lot of people question the validity of their financials. Um, I've kind of thought about that before. Any thoughts on that after this probe? Well, for one, $2.8 billion is something they can easily digest. It yeah, it's feels not, yeah. a lot like the Facebook sort of slap on the wrist they got, whatever it was, a year or two ago. Smaller, actually. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. I mean, this is kind of... Yeah, it, it feels a little validating that the uh, that's all they could get out of this. Well, who 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 all could get what out of it? That all, this is all Alibaba could be fined. Well, I mean, what was the was the investigation into their financials? No, no, it, it was just for an anti-monopoly thing. Like that quote said, they're infringing on the, the rights of consumers or whatever. But the the concerning thing I have about that is that Alibaba has a dominant e-commerce market share in china for a decade or longer so what made the government do this now you know what i mean ma speaking out against the government he just said Probably. one thing that's crazy all right and what kind of concerns me is that and yeah you could argue all right say they based it off of the revenue numbers so they're telling you it's legit and that's great but this also tells you that it is basically up to the whims of the the government Right? Is that am I off base there? Where it, this still shows that it's not Maybe. pure capitalism. I know there's a lot of crony capitalism in the U.S. too, but you know, I've been thinking about the uh, like avoidance of Chinese companies uh, purely because of that, and I think it's maybe starting to go down. I, I my concern for it. Um, well, that's when they say right before the, uh, the 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 next fraud drops. But no, no, uh, yeah, that's just a joke. That's true. just a joke. But. but I mean, I think Charlie Munger, uh, his firm, what is it? The Daily well, Journal, it, it, it's either the one. I think it's outside of Berkshire. Yeah, West Coast inside Berkshire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they bought some Alibaba, which I, I mean, don't know. I don't really care about. It. But I have it down here. But I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like. Maybe we give it too much slack, um, and I feel like if Alibaba were a fraud and the financials were fake, well, I, I think yeah. we're kind of past that now. Yeah, but the thing is, even if it was, I still don't understand the business, which is whatever. That's just a personal thing, but I still can't get around the fact that it feels still like a state-owned enterprise. Yeah, I mean, there's some of those in the U.S., like Lockheed Martin or whatever, but... What's so bad about that? Well, Monopoly. <laughs> I know, but the thing is... Monopolies uh, have good returns. Well, the thing is, with, you know, it seems like 
the go- there's a lot of you know there's other companies like Pinduoduo or why do you think that it's still government owned or government run? Well, it's not government. Uh, it's not government run, but I think you can. I mean, they why, they, why, they why tell they controls and they can they tell the they control who's in charge. They can find them without. I mean, <laughs> Alibaba's been a monopoly for a decade, and they decide now. That doesn't seem like a coincidence. They told them they can't do their IPO with Ant Financial. There's a well, lot of other things. When did the anti-monopoly probe start? I, I have no idea. But it could know. have started. I mean, it started. I don't think that. I, I would have. Yeah. I mean, Ma spoke out and then there was the whole, oh, he disappeared stuff. But I think maybe that's U.S. investors blowing it out of proportion. Possibly. Well, that stuff, yeah, yeah. The, the disappearance stuff, yeah, that was, that was a lot of it was headlines. But on uh, behind the scenes, I mean, if the government can just tell you who's running the company or not, but, they, can decide, mean, they can decide whether your subsidiary can IPO or not, I don't know. It kind of concerns me when a lot of the times well, the US thesis is on management. U.S. has the same... I mean, you talk about well, the government can fine you, like uh, it's the yeah, same. but for yeah, but you can't sue the government. You can sue the government back in the United States. There's a big difference. I suppose. All right, I think it's a well, huge difference. Any uh, any follow up questions? Uh, I was going to ask if it makes you more uncomfortable or less comfortable. I think we covered that. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm. I, I want to adjust my framework for investing in companies, uh, and I'd like to see them. Don't you think it's good though that the government takes action? No, oh, oh, stuff. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. It, it just look. The concern is they've been a monopoly forever. So why now? It seems like they're just deciding whenever it's in the government's best interest to do this. Because what they just let it go for ten years. Alibaba has been losing market share for a decade. Well, you don't know when that. We should look up when the probe started. Uh, oh, because I mean, I mean, the they just started like three years ago. They were losing. They've lost market share every year. I don't know. All right, well, uh, next topic for me, I saw a Richard Feynman quote on Twitter this week. This uh, I guess this would be called maybe current state of FinTwin. I don't know. But um, <laughs> it's, he said, if it disagrees with the experiment, it's wrong. doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is or how smart you are. If it disagrees, you're wrong. And I think this, I mean, there's clearly, it clearly applies to investing. Yeah, a um, lot of stuff, yeah. Do you do this? In investing, do you ever find yourself sort of laying out a really detailed thesis and then kind of clinging to it? Um, I know it's hard to want to reflect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely do that. Um, you got to try to resist doing that. I think the key is to like identify at the start what you're looking at for it to go wrong, and like either writing it down or logging it somewhere. Because if that happens, you can't just adjust to Forget what you're it. hoping for. Like hope isn't a, a thesis. And yeah, it, it is about the, I mean, the experiment analogy is crucial because it comes into like, you have that mindset, all right, you're going to buy something and then never sell, right? That's a lot of people's mentalities. That's kind of our mentalities. But when, if the experiment is not going, like if the company is not performing of what your theory is, you can't just be like, nah, nah, I think this theory is still right. It's like, no, nah, when the evidence shows, and I think that's simple, it's just in earnings reports and industry data. If that happens, you're wrong. You exactly. have to, and you have to log it. You have to identify what's going to go wrong beforehand, or else you're going to convince yourself that you're still right. So I guess, yeah. My my follow up question was, how do you apply the ex, the experiment phase to investing? 
because sometimes oh, right, right. it isn't always you know we own Spotify. It's not always ref- what's going on inside the business isn't always reflected in the financials. Like there's stuff that's kind of going on under the hood that maybe just hasn't been monetized yet. So I guess how do you apply that phase to invest in? How do you know? Uh, um, when your theory hmm. isn't accurate, is it like management commentary? What, what's like the best know. way? Management commentary is tough because that can be a biased thing. And if you're going to go for a scientific method, you'd want the oh gosh, what are they called? You, you know, you only want the uncontrolled variables or the dependent variables or whatever. You don't want to just be stu- you know, you know what I mean. Management yeah. commentary is obviously biased in favor of the company. It's a tough question though. I mean, how, how would you frame that experiment part? I'm not really, I don't, I don't really have a good answer for it. I don't know. It's tough because it's not as e- like the thesis part's easy, and it applies to both yeah. science or investing. Uh, but the experiment, it's not just one experiment. You're kind of watching this thing develop over years, especially if your theory is never sell. So I guess. Maybe it's the market share type of stuff. Pick a factor or pick a, pick a metric and stick to it, I think, yeah. is the way to go. And usually it comes down to, you know, three metrics maybe. Obviously, sometimes it might be five, it might be two. Um, metrics, whether it be financial or just user or whatever, the three metrics typically drive a company. Yeah. There's a lot of other nuances to it, but if those are doing well, I mean, for example, an easy one, Spotify... <laughs> users and premium users <laughs> i yeah. mean if that slows down because you know what part of our thesis is that they're going to hit over a billion monthly active users or however you want to define that in the next decade if that doesn't happen you have to like we identified that beforehand if that doesn't happen then it disagrees with your theory yeah then then uh then you're then you're wrong and you have to change how you how you're viewing the world no. okay all right uh What's your next topic? All right, this one's a fun one. We got a buffet, buffet, excuse me, buffet indicator <laughs> alert. Um, Warren Buffet is back as Kathy Wood uh, of Ark Invest tweeted and forgot the second T in Buffett. Honest mistake. Honest. We all. I mean, everyone does it all the time. So we all. Everyone does it. Yeah. <laughs> but the, well, uh, I've started getting. I've I've typed the word Buffett so much now that I'm starting to think. I'm trying to get it the other way around. That yeah, buffet yeah. is spelled with two T's. Yeah, so that's not that, that's not the complaint here. The real discussion, which that's just funny, and it, we all do it. But the main topic was the Buffett indicator, which is why she said the word buffet, which is the S and P 500 total market cap divided by, I think it's U.S. GDP. Fun fact: Buffett says that this is not useful anymore. So really, I think it's just nonsense. Nonsense. But the main fact posited by Wood was. That the U.S. stock market GD- to GDP ratio was two to three times larger in the late 1800s and early 1900s than it is today. The problem is that is just patently false and can be easily found with one Google search and a few academic studies. From our notes in the history of financial markets, which, easy plug, yeah. <laughs> we did the first season that you can search on whatever podcast platform, history of financial markets. When we were doing research for that, the New York stock market from 1900 to 1925 never got above 0.3 on its ratio. London was above one, but still just slightly above one during that time. And as Chris Bloomstrand noted, who has been, him and the ARC analysts have been battling out on Twitter. It's very, very fun to watch. He noted that for the simple reason that more companies were private, that you can just, it's kind of common sense 
that that indicator was going to be low as most companies were not trading on stock exchanges. Now, when you see this type of blatant, poor analysis, how do you weigh it with how clearly successful ARK has has done and is doing? Well, so... First of all, when Musk threw out that question at her, well, that was fun. That was a, that was it. I, I, whatever. We don't like Musk, but that was that was fun discussion. Honestly, when he threw out that question, uh, it was like he was setting her up yeah, for like like she knew that she had to like that. Here's my turn to give my take, and the whole world's watching. Yeah. So I guarantee there was an analyst tasked with finding a response to that tweet, uh, or mm. maybe a team of analysts. True, you could be right. I don't think that was just her, just like. What about when there's a guy the <laughs> on Twitter? Yeah, you're right. You're right. What about uh, when what about when there's a guy named Shrubbery Capital who said like you got to use world GDP, and Musk was like you got to listen to the shrub. I thought that was pretty funny. It. Yeah, I just using any data from before 1900. And well, like it's, it's very loose. It's very measuring it against today's market is like a totally different world. There yeah. was less than one percent of the world were investors, or less less than one percent of the citizens in the U.S. were investors. US, so at least the U.S. Yeah. Um, I mean, the world was just completely different. There was no the the regulations to get on the exchange were really low. Uh, there was just so many different factors, like no information out there. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the thing, and also that was the period. of... What's crazy to me is that, like you know, there's all this innovation going back then too. Like now, and it's like one, there was more innovation going on back then that actually impacted the world, like air conditioning, automobiles, plumbing. literally electricity, plumbing, uh, just so so many of those advances in medicine, refrigerators, refrigerator, just <laughs> mechanical engineering and civil engineering in general. They're literally inventing thermodynamics, but and railroads. But that's besides the point. The thing is, during that time. There was a clear pattern of bubbles leading up to the 1929 crash. So, yeah. is she arguing that these growth stocks are going to lead to bubbly things? I, I don't know. I just found that, like, I yeah, they've done so well, but the the analysis is just cl- just consistently poor. But their they their performance is amazing. I just it's hard for me to to see those things in. Yeah, the, in, I do the find it strange that that was not like run by someone before putting it out there because they knew the whole world was watching and it's an easy google search that data i don't know if you're using any argument i wouldn't use data especially when it comes to the financial markets from before 1800 yeah other than like mania types like yeah true true yeah i mean the world is completely different and human the, behavior is the same. And yeah, you the can, financial markets are so different. And you you know, there's a lot of academic studies going back that try to piece together some analysis. Typically, you want to use a few different sources because a lot of them are different. Like uh, the source I was using had like the ratio at 0.3. I'm sure other sources had it slightly higher or slightly lower. You just kind of know what kind of range it falls on. Obviously, you know, right now that ratio is like two to one. Is like two or something. I think it was clearly wasn't like six. Back in 1900, uh, that that is clear. But yeah. All right. Anecdotal evidence for me this week. I bought a one month Disney Plus membership last week. Wow, so huge buy signal. <laughs> yeah, c- buy signal. Congrats. Hey, Any hey. Disney investors? Uh, congratulations. You should be thanking Ryan. Yes. Uh, if you guys have a good quarter, you know where that came from. Yeah. Please tip uh, Ryan. But I think the catalog is much better than Netflix right now. Um, huh. And. I'd also go ahead and argue that I don't think Netflix's originals catalog is good enough 
on its own for me to be a member mm-hmm. right now. I think they still have to continue renting out content. Well, counterpoint, I watched Drive to Survive, and it is amazing. Formula One thing? Yeah. I love it. I don't like the sport. You on Ferrari now? Oh, they're one of the best. Them and Mercedes, they are... I mean, they just do a bunch of drone shots of... I mean, they got all the money to win. They got the, the best engines. It's fun. There's a... I mean, I don't like the sport that much. I don't watch it. Maybe I will now. I don't know. But uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff was amazing. That's a Netflix original, but the documentaries seem to be good on there. I don't know. I don't know. You know, they had the, the actual TV shows and movies. Disney Plus was nice. Know. Like... I, I know it's everyone, just anecdotal. I, I don't know. Says like Netflix has def, def, like, you know deflected all of their competitors in the past, but I think I would not be surprised if Disney Plus had more members than Netflix by twenty twenty five. Yeah, I think they. I mean, the pace is impressive for sure. If you include Didn't Hulu hit, and Alien, they hit hundred million members uh, across ESPN Plus and Hulu as well. I, I, I believe so. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's a winner-take-all market. It feels like the winners are going to be Netflix, Disney, and probably HBO Max will do solid because that... that uh, that's the best catalog. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's... They could just... They have, they've had some bad branding, but it seems like... I keep it's going. the most mismanaged, perfect content. I've yeah, seen. so those three seem like the winners. I would really be worried if I was Peacock or, okay. <laughs> or whatever those ones that try to get you on. Uh, Paramount Plus... What's, CBS yeah, Plus. That one's <laughs> What's are... your uh, next topic? Okay, this one is complexity investing, and I bring this up because this is the paper that John Rotanti on last week's interview mentioned. Very, it was very good. I think it's like forty pages. Read it all, not to brag, uh, but uh, some of the ideas on here, uh, and I thought I thought it was really good. Uh, who was it? Is it NZS Capital? Something like that. I think so. Yeah. Look up complexity investing. It'll it'll, it'll show up. Um, in the 21st century, there are, and this is kind of the easy one that I think a lot of people agree with, they say a lot of industries are winner take most. And they wrote this in 2014. I think they proved to be correct on that. Yeah. Um, Netflix, I guess, is a, is a good example. Netflix and Disney now, maybe. Um, but some of the more interesting details they talked about is how good investments in the 21st century have two characteristics, resiliency and optionality. And this is how... They think the moats or competitive advantages evolved to. So resiliency in their mind does not equal maximizing short-term profits, but optimizing the company to have the ability to evolve over the long term. And then optionality equals large potential payoffs from small investments. That optionality part, the easiest example is all the experiments that Amazon has done over the years where only like 5% of them or so actually are successful, but... When they're successful, they're, they're right big. Uh, do you agree with this? Can you think of any examples of maybe that resiliency stuff? The resiliency part, I mean, Square, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Square, yeah, that's something. But Square, I mean, part of that was... Just execution. Well, there was a lot of optionality, I guess, or the, the cash app seemed to be a good bet. But the resiliency part, where it's like right. not maximizing short-term profits... I don't know if that was the default of the economics of their seller business or that was them sort of reinvesting. I think the seller business in and of itself isn't that great economically. Yeah. I say resiliency. You could argue some of these um, website platforms. Shopify is a well-known one that kind of went through that. I would argue as a lot of – or 
has built up a lot of resiliency where yeah. they're kind of basically whatever the customers want, they can just do. And they've added on the payments and stuff like that. Wix, I think, is very resilient in that regard where they've evolved their business. Um, and we know that one uh, well, so that's kind of why. We're yeah, biased, yeah, but. we're a little we're a little biased, and we know that one well, so it kind of always pops up. I think Autodesk and Spotify also from from our links. There's plenty of examples out there, but those also popped up into my head um, as a lot of resiliency. Where some, I mean, I don't know. You, you can you, change as the world sort of changes. Well, you're setting up you. a business where you have you can be nimble to what your users or whoever wants. I don't yeah, know, but the no, thing is, isn't one path track? Yeah, and some you have to. Well, yeah. it's different. So, like they were arguing that back in the day, the optimal way to do it was because there were such large barriers to entry in a lot of businesses, like literally physical barriers to entry. You couldn't get advertising except in a few spots. There was you know all these gatekeepers and stuff like that. What you wanted to do was to raise prices because no one was going to it might take a decade or longer for a competitor to come in and disrupt you. But nowadays, that's a lot easier. So you have to set yourself up to be resilient and not just be just continually raising and raising and raising prices. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's interesting. All right. They also argue that you want to optimize your portfolio for resiliency and optionality. Um, I guess that makes the sense. managers. Like, uh, like when you're making your investments, you want resilience companies and you want companies that are optional, like have a lot of optionality, which are, sorry, the way they are is to take some small bets that could be VC-like returns. Yeah, um, like that. Yeah, it's a bit of the barbell strategy in a different form. I think there's a lot of ways to go about that. They also argue you want companies that play, quote, non-zero-sum games where they, the service they're providing, the customers are paying for it, but it's pro- they're providing more value in return. I think an example, right, would be DoorDash versus Olo. That's how we were thinking about that on that deep dive show where Olo is providing more value. DoorDash might be extracting a bit too much value. What are your thoughts on that? Well, they're just, I mean, yeah, that, I guess that's a good example where Olo does, I think, add value to multiple stakeholders. I think DoorDash is like... Well, they argue they're adding value. They're adding value to everyone because they just offload all the costs. The, well, yeah, I guess the, the man, you know management. <laughs> they are a cost. Yeah, so DoorDash themselves and investors and maybe people that like the company would argue that they are adding value. Some people see it in different lights. Uh, we kind of see it as them extracting a lot of value, but yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. All right, um, all right last thing points. they had on here. So they they argue duration of growth is the most important factor. If you can be confident in duration of growth, that solves a lot of problems. And they also. If say if you're confident that you find a company in the middle of an S curve, um, and I guess an example that comes up for me, we don't own this company um, as of as of listening. It would be Avalara, where it seems like that's kind of at an inflection point where you could see you know twenty percent growth. Uh, we were just looking at that one, so it's kind of popped into my mind. I don't know any other companies or examples come up with that. I don't have any in mind, but I understand. I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe it's just. I think too many times you there are a lot of investors that are just extrapolating current growth rates out in perpetuity. But a lot of that growth, especially like that revenue growth, is being manufactured through huge spend on sales and marketing. So when you peel that back and yeah. you try to grow organically, I assume a lot of that's going to come down. So you want someone who's able to do it for a long time and do so 
hopefully without spending more money in order to get it. Yeah, you'd much rather have just durable 15% growth over a decade than two years of 60% growth or something like that. Uh, and I think, I guess another example of that S-curve hitting like where you're able to identify, all right, this industry is changing. I mean, the easiest examples that everyone comes up with time and time again would be Netflix in 2011. If you could identify that, that's the easiest investment thesis. Ignore everything else. Yeah, yeah, you might be resulting a little bit. And also, AWS in an Azure in like 2015 era. Or now. Or potentially now we're still in the middle of the S-curve like we were talking about earlier. I don't know. All right, I have no more topics, so what's your last one here? Okay, one more fun one. Uh, this might rattle some people's feathers, so we'll try to be respectful. But Binance, well, I thought this was just interesting. One of the world's largest crypto exchanges is allowing customers to buy tokens that go up in value in association with Tesla prices. They're going prices to do of this. Prices the cars or prices of the stock? Price. This is a uh, stock. Stock. Yeah, it's it's all about the the stock here. So they're going to do this with other companies soon. Feels to me like it's just total return swaps. Uh, that's kind of been in the news, right? But with for the masses, um, is it? The, I feel like it's just crypto evolving and saying, yeah, we're just going to replace legacy financial products, but on the blockchain. This makes I, no I, sense. Yeah, I was going to let you say. Buying something that tracks the stock. <laughs> Just buy the. I know. Why not just buy the stock? And it's not an. It's not a time not, weighted thing like an option. <laughs> that seems so pointless to me. I don't. Well, I mean, it was maybe a. Maybe I'm. I always just think I'm like an old timer whenever I see any of this crypto news. Either I'm an old timer or some of this stuff is delusional. Um. Yeah. Let me find. Maybe a mix of both. No, I mean I like following it, and yeah, you don't want to be um, too. <laughs> but I, I mean, uh, the John W.B. Rich, I'm not sure if this is the real one because there's thousands of them now, but he responded to their tweet saying, awesome, there is no other way to bet on shares of Tesla. And I think that kind of just <laughs> hammers on the point where it seems, uh, I mean, what's what's unique about I mean, this, this? is better than call options or out-of-the-money calls, maybe. Yeah, but the thing... When the, there's so much of this, and what I'm gonna is, call it, I'm gonna call it dark money. It's not like dark is in a negative connotation. Connotation when there's untracked bets off of like that people aren't aware of. So say this gets huge, right? Yeah. And there's so many people using this to bet on it. That historically, that is when problems arise in financial markets when there's so much leverage because this is leverage. It's, it's also interesting that. Them buying this instead of the stock, well, does Binance just go and buy the stock? I that's what I because I don't understand. No, I didn't look up the details at all. But uh, I was gonna say, wouldn't that hurt the stock if people were using this as a uh, sort of a proxy or like a different <laughs> instrument? But I mean, unless Binance, Binance has to, they be, have to, yeah. they have to own some sort of exposure. They have to have exposure in some way. But I just don't understand how they're, how you can allow so much exposure onto one stock. It seems elite. Uh, I don't know. I feel like a grandpa, but uh, it shouldn't you Give it not? the times. This is just how it's done these days. I don't know. I'd hope for someone to explain that to me. I wanted someone to explain BlockFi to me this weekend because mind blowing. Yeah, they're they're allowing you to to earn eight point six percent or whatever it is right now on your crypto, but uh, crypto doesn't. It's not backed by any assets. Well, it's because 
they're doing a good DCF on uh, <laughs> the cash flow that Bitcoin will generate over the next few years. Yeah, I was, so I, just I, was try- I was trying to figure out how they make that work. You know, trying to have an open mind here, folks. But it and there's other ones like uh, uh what's you it called? DeFi. A, well, you assume a ten percent growth rate of all crypto and subtract <laughs> out the one point four percent for yourself and give eight point six to the customers. Yeah, and then it's, it's and then you lever up ten times just like a just like a bond fund. Perfect, easy stuff. And then there's like the Arm. DeFi, the DeFi stuff that also just way over my head. They claim to let people earn fifteen percent. These, I mean, this is just why not thirty? Just, just you know. Well, I mean, you get enough money. Here's coming. what's happening. Either okay, I honestly have no idea about the business model. So I maybe they're actually it. lending stuff. But yeah, whatever. Either they are lending their own money at eight percent and losing it, or I mean, they have to be getting eight percent. Their you need rate. inflows. You need to be because if you're lending. Or sorry, if you're giving out no, like if a bank no if a bank is paying out an interest rate at eight percent, they need to be earning at a higher rate. They yeah, eight percent is their hurdle rate, so I don't understand how that's even possible. Yeah, I don't, Again, I'm not either. Well, obviously there's you can assume enough risk to generate. That yeah, you can assume a hurdle yeah. rate, but it's, you can't just arbitrage some other rate. Like you're not gonna get money at eight percent or nine percent and then lend it out at eight. That doesn't make any sense. I don't, dude. I don't know. I don't know. I honestly, it might be legit. I'm not saying it's nefarious or anything, but it just seems risky. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how yeah. see what happens. I just don't understand it yet. How how are they able to lend at these rates? It doesn't make any sense. And if someone can explain that to me no, without sorry, using not lend. Uh, they are they are not lending. Oh, true, true. Sorry, sorry. They are giving. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, sorry if I miss. We're, yeah, we we don't have the t- the the we're we're not good at analyzing banks. We don't have the actual. We're bad at with the real terms, but that's why it makes no sense. I don't know what the inflow is. All right, well, I think that's gonna do it, right? Yep. Okay, thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Luis. Feel free to follow him on Twitter. Like I said, good content. Uh, we are general partners at Arch Capital, so anything we say, uh, us or uh, investors may have positions in the securities discussed. Uh, we're also not financial advisors, so anything we say or discuss on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Whatever Luis said was not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.